Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapters 3 and 4. This is week 3 in our series in this book. And I trust that you have come hungry for the Word of God today. Searching for truth. Because we are going to dive deep this morning. This is one of the most fascinating conversations recorded in all of the Bible between God and any individual person. This is God's call to Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. As you know, the, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, have been in the severest of bondage. They have recently been put through infanticide. All of the male boys have been killed by the king of Egypt, as many as he would have anyway. But you know that Moses was saved rescued by the good hand of God, and actually adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters. The irony of such a salvation. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace at the age of 40. We saw last week he killed an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrews severely. And when word got out, Pharaoh attempted to kill Moses, but Moses escaped ran for his life, fled to the land of Midian, where he found a wife. And for 40 years, he lived his own life. And today we come to the conversation between God and Moses, the calling on Moses' life for the rest of his life. And what we're going to see is that Moses gives five excuses why he can't do it. And friends, we are going to also see that these are five lies that trouble many Christians and people today. These are five lies that trouble many of us. If we listen to the Word of God and humble ourselves before Him and believe what He says, He will help us gain victory over these lies through all five of these points that we are going to do our best to cover in one shot today. We're going to have to press hard to get through these two chapters. So I'm going to speak quickly. You listen quickly. Don't blink or you'll miss something on the slides, I tell you. But we are going to press our way through here and get through all five of these excuses. We want to see them in one shot so we can absorb the magnitude of this conversation between God and a man who became to be known as the friend of God, Moses. So let's begin reading and studying our way through chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which I'll interject is another name for Mount Sinai. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again want to just ask that you would speak to us through your word. We acknowledge that your word is truth and that we need it. How we need truth and the strength to do what is right. We want to come face to face with you this morning, Lord, to see you in your word revealed to us. Lord, teach us more about you and your ways. Help us to learn more about ourselves and our ways and how we can grow and come to acknowledge and adopt the truth and the power that comes from you. Thank you for what you're going to do this day, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, two weeks ago, we studied chapter 1 on the fear of the Lord. Now, for the sake of the time, rather than preach on it again, and since we have limited time in Exodus before we actually get to the Christmas season, so instead, I, I sent out a short devotional this week on the first six verses. And that devotional just challenged us to evaluate our personal fear of God, our respect of the Lord, and particularly how we enter into His presence. Whether that be on these Sunday mornings or in our own quiet times in the Bible each day, etc. If you didn't receive that email, you can find it in any of the SALT groups on our community site. There are also a handful of copies printed out there in the foyer that you can pick up if that's helpful for you. For now, we're going to continue reading. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now these verses reflect back on the last two verses of chapter 2, which we studied last week. Those verses that say, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Yes, God knew exactly what was going on in Egypt, and He knows exactly what's going on in your life and mine. Every intricate detail. That was our focus last Sunday. And here today, just a few verses later in chapter 3, God emphasized and re-emphasized and re-re-emphasized and quadruple emphasized this truth again. He said, I have surely seen, I have given heed, I am aware, furthermore, I have seen. I love God's furthermore there. In case, what you, in case you just missed what I said seven times. Furthermore, in addition, on top of that, I have seen. God is pressing this truth deep into the mind of Moses and all who read these scriptures. God knows that our human tendency is to assume that He doesn't know what's going on in our lives, that He doesn't see, that He doesn't understand, and He doesn't care. If you're troubled with those thoughts, God has eight things to say to you today. 
I know, I know, I know, I know, etc. What a powerful truth that we looked at last week and discussed in our salt groups, and we see it here again. Moving on to verse 10. The passage now transitions into this remarkable discussion between God and Moses. It's not often that we get to see discourse between God and man, a conversation where they go back and forth with each other. This is where we'll focus today. Verse 10 begins with a key word, therefore. And we know that the therefore is there for a reason. God is saying, seeing that everything I just stated is true, seeing that I know what is going on, seeing that I remember my covenant, seeing that I observe the oppression and I do hear the cry, seeing that I am going to deliver and I am going to provide a new country for you, a new homeland, seeing that I know what's going on and I do have a plan, God goes on to say to Moses, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. God just invited Moses to come along for the ride and to be a part of the redemption of Israel. He gets, to, he gets to sit in the passenger seat up front. He gets to ride shotgun with God on the redemption of Israel. Now you and I really have to make an effort to put ourselves in Moses' shoes to even begin to understand how those words must have hit his ears. After generations of slavery and bondage in Egypt, after all the infanticide, after 40 years now of Moses living outside Egypt, God out of nowhere suddenly appears to Moses in a burning bush that is not burning up, and God says, it's time to break free. Let's do this, you and me. Can you imagine hearing those words? That was a mind-blowing statement as we're going to see to Moses. And God didn't, dare I say it, beat around the bush. In one sentence, he said, Come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, what was Moses' response? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. We have to remember that God calling Moses back to Pharaoh to Egypt is nothing like God calling you or me or any Hebrew of that time back to Egypt. Remember, Moses was a marked man. He was a traitor to the king. He was a despised enemy of Pharaoh. And we have good reason to think that perhaps even some, if not many, of the Hebrew people also bitterly despised Moses for abandoning them and for living for 40 years in the luxury of Pharaoh's palace. It was a slap in the face to his people. Just think about all the detail at play in this scenario. No wonder Moses says, are you sure I'm the right guy for the job? This is excuse number one from Moses. It may be a sincere one, but it's still an excuse. Who am I? Have you ever asked God that question? Perhaps used it as an excuse? As we go through these five excuses from Moses and the five replies from God, 
we're going to see that we are not so different than Moses. And God's replies are highly applicable to us today. There are three words in Moses' response here that threw him off track, that deflated his faith, and that blurred his spiritual vision. And what were those words? Who am I? You know what the answer is to that question? Nobody. We are truly nobodies, you could say, in the grand scheme of what God wants to do in the world through all of history. We are nobodies. We cannot do the spiritual and miraculous word work that God calls us to. Moses was well aware he could not deliver the people out of Egypt. We likewise have this understanding, this sense that we are not strong enough to do everything that we should do in this life. Whether that be a God-glorifying spouse or parent, employee or friend, an ambassador of Christ, whatever it is, we can't do it. And let me say, it's okay to ask the question, who am I? So long as the follow-up question is, and who is God? God just finished telling Moses how powerful and omniscient he was. God just finished saying, I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Look at where else Moses' perspective got off. In verse 10, God said, Come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh. Perhaps that's the part that Moses missed. God went on to say, So that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Perhaps that's all Moses heard, right? There is a Mount Rainier-sized lesson for us here. It's not us, it's God with us. That's standing up for your faith and doing what's right when it's not popular at school, young people. It's not you, it's God with you. That taking a stand in the workplace, it's not you, it's God with you. That 18 plus year responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of God, it's not you. It's God with you. That trial, that illness, that unexpected, that unexpected financial blow, it's not you. It's God with you. The preaching of the Word Sunday morning after Sunday morning, it's not me. It's not Pastor Mark. It's God with us. But the moment any of us forgets the sent by God factor in our lives and focuses only on who am I that's the moment we will either lose heart I can't do it or pride will raise its ugly head I can do this either way apart from the sending presence of God and a dependence on him for the strength that only he can provide apart from that we are in for disillusionment and disappointment. When we do recognize the sending factor, we appreciate Isaiah's response to the Lord in Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. 
But Mo Moses forgot the God sent, God commissioned, God ordained, God accompanied, God powered factor. Look at, what the God, look at God's first reply back to Moses in verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with you. Much to our surprise, God did not say, hang in there, Moses, you can do this. He said, certainly I will be with you. That is a gold nugget of truth. When God sends, God accompanies. Will you say that with me? When God sends, God accompanies. I need to get out of the habit of telling people, hang in there, you can do it. How much better that I say, hang in there, God is with you. And we can't miss the word certainly. God says, certainly, surely, definitely, guaranteed, I will be with you. That's God's response to the faith-destroying sense of inferiority. His reply to inferiority is not, you are so awesome, you are so strong, you can do this. His response is, I will be with you. That's what we want to hear. Forget me being super strong. I want the power of God on my side. That's how we can claim the well-known verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are amazing truths in the, in the New Testament and the Old. Certainly, I will be with you. Verse 12, God continues his reply. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. God even offered Moses a bonus sign to prove that God, what God was saying was true. You're going to bring the people out of Egypt, and they're going to worship me right here at this mountain. Look at verse 13, excuse number two. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Excuse number two. They don't know who God is. They won't recognize him. Now I'm sure none of us would ever do this, but Moses' mind is fast-tracking through all the potential problems that could arise from obeying God. Moses is a thinker. He's a planner. He, he estimates. You can just hear his brain going through the checklist of potential complications to doing what God has told him to do. He has obviously already forgotten what God just said in the verses prior about his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his great power. Listen to God's second response to Moses, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is a stunning answer. When Moses says, who do I tell them you are? God says, tell them who I am. I am who I am. There is wisdom here for us. Again, God did not say, don't worry, Moses. They'll believe you. Trust me, you'll do fine. No, instead, God turned the focus right back to himself. I am who I am. In this moment, Moses ceased to fear the Lord because he forgot who God was. He started looking around. We've seen, we see this in the New Testament, right, with the disciples. Peter, when Jesus had invited him to walk on the water, to come out to him and walk on the water, and Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he looked around. 
He saw the waves and he started to sink. Jesus didn't tell him, try harder, Peter. Keep your balance. You can do it. Likewise, God didn't tell Moses to just give it his best shot. God simply said, tell them who I am. I am who I am. Now, if you've done a little study on this, this chapter, in particular, this name of God, then you know that this name of God is referred to as what? The Tetragrammaton. The four letters. The four-letter name of God. I'd love to talk about the Tetragrammaton, but I have to stay focused so we're not going to get out of here in time for lunch. So two tips. One, go to the website godquestions.org and do a search for Tetragrammaton. Or search, I know it's a big word, or search for Yahweh, the short version of Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. There is a fascinating article there on this name of God. And secondly, I'm going to email some info to all, everybody in the SALT groups on the community this afternoon. So be watching for that. For now, let's look at the rest of God's response. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I'll just give a, a, a peek into the, the article and what I'll send out this afternoon. I am means I exist. I am the self-existent one. I am the one with no mother or father. I am of myself. This is what God is telling Moses. I am has sent me to you. That is a name that no other God can claim. Every other God has been created. Every idol has been made by someone. Verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please let us go with three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And God continues to say, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor, speaking of the Hebrews, I will grant them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Remember, the slaves will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. In rare form, God has just poured out the entire big picture of what he is going to do and, and how he is going to do it. Friends, here's why God rarely does that. Verse Four, chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. When we doubt and question God, does it help 
Does it help for God to lower himself to our doubts and explain to us every detail of what he plans to do and how he's going to do it? Not if we're anything like Moses. And we are. You know it. I know it. Remember, these scriptures were written to teach us. The Old Testament is a mirror of the nature of mankind, especially a mirror of the people of God, you and me. And all God's people said, that hurts. <laughs> yes, this is written to teach us, to correct our, our faulty thinking, our faulty beliefs. God lays out the whole series of events that are going to happen, and Moses replies in verse 1 with, but what if they don't believe me? Excuse number three, they still won't believe. Have you ever thought that? Lord, I'd say something to that person, but I already know they probably won't believe. I'd say something, but I already know they don't want to hear it. You and I are not the first to try that excuse on God. Here's God's patient reply to Moses, verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. What does that mean? It was a big snake. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Now God goes on to con continue to say, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. God says, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, that's the staff, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile, it's from the great river, and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is astounding. God, recognizing Moses' faithless forward thinking, gave Moses three supernatural backup plans. If they don't believe you, do this miracle. If they still don't believe you, do that miracle. And if they still don't believe you, turn the water into blood. When you and I say, but God, others won't believe me, you know what God's reply is? Show them the miracles. Christian friends, do you have any miracles you can tell the lost about? Any miracles that you can show to the doubters? Like a miracle of hope and peace in the hardest times of your life? God's presence when you most felt alone in this world? Forgiveness instead of guilt? Joy even in the midst of your most painful sorrow? And what about strength over debilitating and controlling sins and addictions? In Mark chapter 2, we have the account of the lame man who was brought to Jesus by his friends. You know, they, they went up on the roof and they broke through the roof just to lower Jesus down into his presence, or to lower their friend down into Jesus' presence because the house was so full. 
And what piercing question did Jesus ask everyone watching? He said this, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? That stumped everyone in the room, you can be assured. And if you've read the chapter, then you know that Jesus healed the man so that everyone would know that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. Christian friends, we have experienced the greater, more powerful miracle of God. Miracles that impact eternity, not just 80 years. Miracles that impact our heart and our spirit, our soul, not just our body. I had the privilege of visiting our good friend, John Kerr, in the hospital a couple times earlier this week. Asked him how he's doing. He gave me an update on the latest doctor report on his heart, and he told me, I'll say it like it is. One of my ventricles is only running at about 13%, and the doctor said there's nothing they can do for me. So we just sit and wait. <clears throat> John is standing at the doorstep of death. He is at home with hospice care as we meet here in worship. I told him that, <clears throat> that we were praying as a family for him and we were rooting for him. And then I leaned a little closer and I said, John, tell me, how is your heart doing? He smiled the biggest old smile and he said, my heart's doing great. <clears throat> that is a miracle. John is smiling because death has already lost its sting. 1 Corinthians 15. That's a miracle. You and I have the privilege of showing the lost that we have personally experienced the greatest miracles known to man. When people don't believe, show them the miracles. Tell them about the miracles that you have experienced time and time again in your life. That's God's response to, what if people won't believe? Now, as one of your pastors and as someone who cares deeply about our spiritual health, let me address a sensitive subject. I don't doubt that there are some sitting here today, right now, thinking, I don't have any miracles to tell anybody about. I've been going to church maybe for my whole life, I think I'm a Christian, but I don't have any miracles to tell people about. I don't know what I would say. Friend, if you don't have any to show, this would be a good time to honestly ask yourself, why not? Many people haven't experienced them because they have never come face to face with God. Read the first six verses of this chapter. Many people have not experienced them. The miracles of forgiveness and freedom, strength and hope, etc., because they've never come face to face with God. They've said a prayer, but they did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not place their faith in Him alone. They say they believe, but they're not His disciples, His true followers. There's a difference. 
if you have not experienced the miraculous fruit of the Spirit, that is a divinely empowered love, joy, peace, etc., and the forgiveness of sin, freedom from guilt, and the presence of God, then today is a good day to experience your first miracle. Repent, believe with all your heart, and be saved. We know well, you hear them often, the verses from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, your Lord, and believe in your heart, not just your mind, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and him being raised back to life the third day, conquering death, conquering the power of sin. If you believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's the forgiveness of sin. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Saved from the power of sin. Saved from the consequences of sin. It's why there is death in this world in the first place. It's why there is a hell. It's why there is a separation of God. God promises if you will believe, you will be saved from all of that. Verse 11 says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Friends, that teaches us there is, that there is a disappointment to come that will shatter all other disappointments. It's the disappointment that a person did not make it into the presence of God and heaven for eternity. These are the words of Scripture. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It's the writer saying, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no difference between the Jews, the people of God, and the Greeks, the people who are not Jews. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, if you have never experienced that miracle, won't you repent of sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and experience that miracle today? In doing so, the Bible says, you will be saved. How do you know it's true? Faith. We trust the Word of God above all else. We trust God Himself. If you have any questions about this, please speak with me or another here from our church. We'd love to open the Bible and show you what Scripture says about sin and forgiveness, about death and eternal life, about the love of God upon people who did not deserve it. You, you can only imagine how it touches a dad's heart when earlier this week, his little girl says, we remember the verse from Covey's while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God. Christian friend, if you and I know that we are saved, our faith is in Christ alone, but we haven't experienced any real life, heart level miracles in a long time, it could be that we've been living on excuses for far too long. Don't be a Moses. Not in the sense here of making excuses with God. Sink your teeth into this chapter and the one prior and the one prior. Meet with God.
James 4, 7 and 8, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is here to be found. Ask a brother and sister in Christ to come alongside you and strengthen your faith in the word if you haven't experienced a miracle in a long time. There are no successful lone rangers in the family of God. We know this. We are in this together because we need each other. We were designed to operate only best with each other. If you're weak right now, maybe it's time to stop pretending like you're strong. If you're strong, maybe it's time to stop pretending like you're weak. Get up and get on the front lines and serve God and make Him known with all you've got. If you're strong, don't just revel in the good times. See them as the opportunity that God has ordained them to be for you to go alongside another and lift their weary arms. Remember 1 Corinthians 12. We studied that last year. God designed us to work together so we can do what? Verses 25 and 26. Care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. That's what the family of God was designed to look and function like. We're in this together with God. Back to Exodus 4. Verse 10 gives us Moses' next response. And this is where we all cringe because it keeps getting worse. And we keep seeing our own tendencies. Listen to this very popular excuse in 2018. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither recently, nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Excuse number four, I don't have the gift to do that. To do what I know God has burdened me to do. I don't have the gift to do that. After experiencing two physical miracles, after hearing the voice of God literally speaking to him, seeing a bush that is inflamed but is not engulfed, it's not burning up, Moses still pulls out another doubt, another fear, and says, but Lord, I'm not a good speaker. Look at the extent Moses went to here, and I'm sure he's telling the truth. I never have been a good speaker. Not even recently. God, not even right now talking to you. Slow tongue, slow speech. Moses continues looking down at himself when he should be looking up at God, trusting God, seeing Him for who He is. Here's God's fourth patient reply. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Notice that God keeps reminding Moses who he is. This is a stunning truth reply for us all to wrap our minds around. God made you just the way you are. Let's stop right now and tell ourselves that. God made me the way I am. All my weaknesses, all my strengths, God made me the way I am. There's a vital lesson here. We must never wave our intrinsic natural weaknesses in the face of God. To do so is to forget that He's the one who made us that way, and He made us fearfully and wonderfully. This is the God who makes no mistakes. This is the God who knows all things. This is the God who does all things, who can do all things. This is the God who only does right. 
and He made us that way. God didn't mess up. As the psalmist said, when He wonderfully and fearfully made us, God made no mistakes when He gave one person sight and made another blind. When one to walk and He makes another to be lame. One healthy and one sick. The truth is, our weakness is the grand stage of His power. I know that's hard to hear, but we have to hear it and believe it and keep believing it. The Apostle Paul learned this Exodus chapter 3 and 4 lesson. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, Paul said, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times. He begged God, he prayed God three times that it might leave me. And God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And what was Paul's conclusion to that truth? What was his resolution? He said, most gladly, we can't miss that point when we choose faith. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We could camp out right here for this entire study this morning and the next 10. Sufficient grace, perfected power, Weakness boasted, power experienced, personal contentment, Christ's glory, strong weakness. Praise God for these seven truths. Fear the God who made us just the way we are, including but not limited to our weaknesses. Look at God's continued response in verse 12. Now then, and again, that's like the therefore we saw earlier. Seeing all of what I just said to be true, God says, go, and I, even I, that's like God saying, it's me, remember me, remember who's talking to you, I'm God, I am the self-existing one, I'm the one who will be with your mouth and teach you what you were to say. When we want to give God the excuse that we don't have the skills or strengths needed to do what we know he tells us to do, then we need to remember that God equips us exactly as needed. God is the one who's, who equips. That is a truth for us today. What we lack, God will supply. Whatever skill, whatever knowledge, whatever strength, whatever direction, God will supply. Now, I don't have time to read it now, so I'm going to send it out to, again, to all the community salt groups, a dynamite poem I found that begins with this. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Where the arms of God cannot support you. Where the riches of God cannot supply your needs. And this writer goes on and on and on. Watch for that beautiful poem in your email. Verse 13, what did, God, what did Moses have to say in response to God and God's promise to equip him? Verse 13, but he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Now, first glance, that seems like a decent answer 
This is why we read in context. The next verse, verse 14, helps us interpret verse 13 for what Moses was really saying. He was saying, send anybody but me. This is excuse number five. Somebody else can do it. I want to ask for a raise of hands from all the folks in this room like me who have thought somebody else can do it. Finish the phrase. Better than me. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. We learn here that the patience of God has a righteous limit. Are you and I testing God, pushing his patience in any area of our lives? Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 gives us a peek a few, few months ahead here over the years into the wilderness wandering that we're going to come to in a few more chapters. After the people of Egypt were rescued out of Egypt, here's what happened. Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, this is words for us today. Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. None of those people would make it into the promised land. What about Psalm 78, 56 to 64? Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow, for they provoked Him with their high places, their idols, etc., and aroused His jealousy with their graven images, their places of idol worship. They provoked God. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, his temple, the tent with which he had pitched among men and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also said to his people, he also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. That is the people of Israel. Fire devoured his young men, and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. Yes, God does have a righteous anger. That is quite a reply to Moses' excuse. Not me. Somebody else can do it better. Are there circumstances in your life or mine where we know God wants us to do something or change something? We know He wants us to take a stand or repent of our own behavior and do what's right, but we keep putting God off. We keep offering what we think are valid excuses. Friends, the patience of God has a righteous limit. We see this through the entire New Test Old Testament. The Old Testament reveals the God of the New Testament as well. It reveals God himself. The patience of God has a righteous limit. The time will come when his anger will arrive on the scene. Don't test God's patience. Verse 14 continues. And God said, 
Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. God is prophesying right here to Moses to prove that he is God, that he knows all things, past, present, and future. Verse 15, you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak to, for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff which, with which you will perform the signs. In these verses, I want you to observe the merciful patience of God, even in the midst of his righteous burning anger. This is hope for all people, what we are reading right here. Listen to what 2 Peter 3.9 says about the long suffering or the long patience of God. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Boy, read that phrase in light of what's happening here in Egypt. Those people are going to start to see the plagues. They're going to they're get upset because God isn't moving fast enough. We're going to see that next week. Moses and the lack of trust and faith in the people and in Moses. But here we see, listen to this verse about, uh, in 2 Peter again. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the loving patience of God. We have a balance of truth here. God is angry, but God is patient, and he is perfectly both. Let us not test the anger or the patience of God. Fear him for his righteous anger and thank him for his merciful patience. Verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Moses is assuming that there is a good chance all of the Hebrews have already been killed. Think about it. One of the Hebrews was just raised for 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. Moses can only rightly assume that vengeance has been carried out upon the Hebrews. Let me see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. Whatever you do, don't forget the staff, right? The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. So he let him alone. 
At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. To say that this is a shocking part of the story is an understatement. Nobody saw this coming. God called for a meeting with Moses along the way, and the purpose of that meeting was to kill Moses. Nobody saw that coming. Here's some things we can observe and learn. Clearly, Moses was going through the motions of obeying God, but he had no intent to fulfill it when the time came. After everything God had demonstrated to Moses, notice, again, God even continues to prophesy. He's telling Moses step by step what's going to happen next, and the conclusion of the matter is that God, right now, has the right and reason to end Moses' life. Clearly, Moses' heart was not right with God, even though he was going through the motions. This is a warning to us. This is a lesson for us. Friends, God has every right to do what he wants to do with your life and mine, including the ending of it. Now, that's a, that's a shocking truth. That's a hard truth. But we can rest in that truth because God only does what is good and righteous and perfect and holy. And sometimes he deems it right to end the life of those who rebel against him. We're looking at it right here. Paul acknowledges this truth in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding those who partake of communion unworthily. He said, some are sick and even some sleep among you. This truth should strike the fear of God in our hearts. He deserves to be respected and to be honored. This, among every other reason that we have observed in the character of God, this should compel us to obey him while there is still time. Moses had run out of time. That is a frightening thought. But we see that someone intervened. God provided a mediator, an intercessor, none other than Moses' wife. Now, we don't have time this morning to dive into the meaning behind Zipporah's actions. You can study that in your study Bibles, do some research. It's a good study. I simply want to go on record right this second as thanking God for the wife who intercedes for me. She prays for me. She encourages and challenges me to honor the Lord when I'm weak and when I'm failing to do so. She inspires and blesses me in my personal walk with God. Many of you could say the same thing about your spouse. God help us to be that kind of spouse. Remember the name Zipporah. If we search the scriptures carefully, we will find the little-known people, like the two midwives in chapter 1, little-known people who did magnificent things for God. Think about it. We see here that the whole Exodus story at this moment hinges on Zipporah. Soak in the fact that she stopped the hand of God according to the will of God. 
don't lose sight for a second that God was still the conductor in this orchestra. He was still the one moving the pieces in this play. God was still in charge in this circumstance. This too was a part of God's plan. He's teaching us. Verse 27 to the end as we wrap up. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he, with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. So what do we learn today? Well, for one, notice that God uses imperfect people. We could camp out on that for a long time this morning. God uses imperfect people. He uses people who are weak in their faith. He uses people who don't have much skill. He uses people who have made mistakes. Why? to keep them from exalting themselves, as Paul said, to demonstrate his power. We also learn that God is patient with our doubts, with our weaknesses, with our questions against him. Praise God for that. We also remember that he made us just the way we are. And he didn't mess up. He's God, right? Even he made us, and he is good. Notice also that it doesn't pay to argue with God. And of course, in our righteous view of ourselves, we would never call it arguing. We think of it more as thinking out loud with God, making sure we understand, even worse, making sure he understands when at the root of it, we just don't want to obey. We know what God says about an angry spirit we just don't want to yield. We know what God says about selfishness. We just don't want to let go. We know what God says about moral, moral purity. We just don't want to stop lusting. We know what he says about pride. We just don't want to be humble. Why? Because we forget who God is. We don't fear him with the reverential awe like we should. The bottom line is that we think God doesn't understand. He doesn't see. He doesn't care. When the reality is that we have sinful hearts and sin wants to sin. But thankfully, God sees and God understands and God is patient. He wishes that none would perish but that all would come to repentance. You know how the verse goes. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. The victory. Yes, victory over sin and trial and hardship is ours to be claimed, to be had with God, with Christ. And obedience is our loving and grateful obligation in response. Moses had right reason to obey God. 
Are you and I wrestling with any of these five excuses today? Ponder the replies of God to Moses. Learn from them. Recognize that they apply to us. Those five excuses are all lies. That's the truth of the matter. I encourage us to go back over this list in our quiet time this week. Let us learn from Exodus chapters 3 and 4. It is best for us simply, what do we sing? To trust and obey, to fear God and to believe Him for who He is, the great I Am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we readily acknowledge that we do not fully see you for who you are, the self-existing one, the one who had no beginning and will have no end, the one who needs no other. Lord, but we want to see more of you. Thank you for this morning through your word, how you have shown us your character. You have shown us your heart. You have shown us your ways. We marvel that you are such a patient and good God. Thank you for using weak people. Thanks, thank you for using people who have made mistakes and who will make mistakes. Thank you for your patience in our times of fear and doubt. Thank you that when our faith is low, your patience is high. Even in your anger, your patience is strong. Thank you, God. Strengthen our faith. As we believe, help our unbelief. We love you, Lord, because you are the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.